We should talk about what we're supposed to talk about. We could get into it. Yeah, we'll do some some introductions. Yeah, let's do it. Joining me today, this morning, appropriate, we're doing this Monday. I have a fantastic best-selling author. So this is very much, I don't know, I get a little like awestruck by this sort of thing. But you're going to keep me in line here on what we're going to talk about today. Just for background, I have to say that, and I told you this, I think, before, that my dad was the one who recommended your book, Her Best Kept Secret. And when I read it, I was like, this is exactly what I've been seeing in my own young adult life, but but without getting too much into things too too far forward, I guess. Go ahead and, and introduce yourself here. So my name's Gabrielle Glazer and um I wrote this book called Her Best Kept Secret, Why Women Drink and How They Can Regain Control. Partly because I was noticing well, in one case I saw an op ed by the great New York Times columnist Charles Blow. I saw an op ed piece that said, Why is mom in rehab? And it was just after Tatum O'Neill had been busted for buying drugs from an undercover cop in New York City. I read that. I was really struck by the numbers. There was a huge jump in the number of women who had been admitted to rehab in the United States. And I started wondering why that was happening. I sort of, I, I took that data point and I looked at really anecdotal stuff that I'd seen in my own life. My own drinking had increased, you know, from an occasional glass or two of wine during the week to drinking two glasses of wine every day and sometimes three, I'll be honest. And watching, realizing that women around me were drinking so much more, I had colleagues who were, you know, drinking a bottle of wine every night. I noticed women sneaking wine bottles into my recycling bin. I lived in Portland at the time, and people, as you know, there are big recyclers, and I, I noticed this woman was putting two bottles of, giant bottles of Chilean Merlot in my recycling bin every Monday, every Sunday night, and I thought, well, why is she not using her own recycling bin? And it was pretty evident she didn't want anybody to know she was drinking those two bottles of Chilean Merlot. So women were being arrested more for drunk driving. There were a lot of deaths. So I not only looked at the numbers, I mean, the reasons behind that, why women are drinking more, but also what they can do to get better. And I was really surprised because I'd never been, I didn't consider my, and I'm not, I didn't consider myself addicted. And it was pretty easy for me to cut back once I realized, oh, I'm, you know, I'm drinking two-thirds of that bottle. It was a really stressful period in my life. I'm drinking two-thirds of that bottle. Why am I doing that? It's not helping me. I'm not lucid. At, not, I'm not as lucid as I want to be at night. I'm not reading. You know, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? It's not helping me. I decided to look at how women got better. And I, I thought, well, they go to AA and that's what they do to get better because that's, you know, that's what works. And once I started examining that, I realized it was not true. It's true for some people, and the people for whom it works really sort of have a, a cultural foothold. And I wondered, you know, why is this 12-step faith-based and abstinence-based program was really something that we relied on, we over-relied on as a nation, and how that, how that happened, why it happened, and why it's hard to get away from it. But most importantly, what works. If it doesn't work for you, if this program doesn't work for you, and again, I mean, there are no data behind it because it's, you, 
can't do a randomly controlled double-blind trial on Alcoholics Anonymous because people know they're in AA, but AA's own data, surveys from members, show that for every 100 people who show up on January 1st, only five people remain. They're sitting in those same chairs on December 31st. So that really struck me, and I looked really hard at that. Yes. Okay. So I, I read the book. Um, this was, I think, mm-hmm. right when it first came out. Like I said, my father was the one who, I think he noticed amongst some of my friends in terms of, you know, who I hung out mm-hmm. with and stuff. I'm, you know, I'm getting older. You're graduating from college. Now we're moving on to successful careers. People reaching their 20s, 30s. And he was the first one who was like, I think you need to read this book because I think you need to take a look at what it's like to be a successful woman. And he always kind of, when I was in college, being the protective father that he is, he does this thing sometimes where he'll send me articles as a gentle nudge as his way of saying, perhaps you should read this or, you know, maybe clue into what's going on around you. Because sometimes, you know, I stay in my own little bubble. And he mm-hmm. sent me emails for, for a little while before that, especially when I was in college, turning 21, about the culture of drinking and how it's different for women mm-hmm. and how it's different for women who have a degree of success as well. The studies behind that and how it can be rationalized, sometimes the drinking. And mm-hmm. that's what kind of clued me into the fact that maybe there's more to the story than somebody who presents as this person that has some sort of drinking problem that you think of is this total disaster of a person and is out there on the street and just is this walking drunk. Like there's now, you know, in my mind, I didn't realize it until then that there's different forms of drinking too much, drinking to excess and having a problem with that and not just celebrating or being 21 or being in college and how that bleeds into sort of your whole entire timeline down the road, I guess, a little bit about how you make excuses, perhaps, or you rationalize things. And when he said this, sent me the suggestion for your book, and I read it, I was thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I saw myself and I saw my friends, you know, my other female friends in a lot of things that I, that I read. And I was like, oh man, there are things that are linking up in terms of, you know, you see on Facebook about people who who make light of jokes about how, oh, two bottles of wine is how I get to sleep. You know, like the, the memes or something to those effect. And you're like, I don't, I don't know if that's funny to some, at what point is it not funny? What, at what point is it a problem? Is it concerning? Exactly. And then mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with the whole thing with the Atlantic article, so that's the, what, the irrationality of, of AA that you wrote a few years back as well. That article really resonated with me because I've had my own journey with, with drinking and my relationship towards alcohol. And when I, I I attended meetings, because nursing school, we went to AA meetings to see what it's like to use the resources in a community. You you want to learn mm-hmm. what is it like for people to go to these, these places and see mm-hmm. a little bit of that culture. So we actually had to go to those meetings. And I'll never forget, like, I'm... I'm in my early 20s. I'm sitting. I didn't want to say anything because it was not my place to say. Um, I'm just there to observe. And I'm not going to lie. So it's easier for me to just not say anything. And I'm sitting mm-hmm. there and that and like this woman, this middle aged woman made a beeline for me right after the first meeting was like, if you have any questions, just let me know. Here's my number. Like very welcoming in her spirit, but also very overwhelming about like this culture of right. AA. Like I, I want to help mm-hmm. you please come back to the next meeting. 
obviously there's something going on in your life because you're here. And I mean, it's almost like that pressure cooker situation where you're like, I don't know. It was just like very overwhelming. And I didn't, I didn't see, I guess, no, I should backtrack. I didn't have any experience or have any, I wasn't there for that, what other people were there for. So, you know, I was just like, that's very kind of you. I'll think about it. And I left it at that. But it was just interesting how even just being at one meeting, if there's a new person at that meeting, they do want to welcome you. But it was just like, whoa, this is coming on kind of yeah. hot and heavy. You know, I had similar experiences because I went to about a dozen meetings, like 10 maybe meetings, 10 dozen meetings, 10, 12 meetings, just to see, just to get a feel for it. I went to all women's meetings. I went to mixed meetings. I went to meetings in the morning. I went to meetings at night. I went to meetings in wine country in Napa, in, not in Napa, uh, in Oregon. I went, I went to, you know, I said Newburgh. I had a very similar experience, but more, you know, and I write about this more, more overwhelmingly. I went. I'm a middle-aged woman, and I went wearing really nondescript clothing, um, no makeup, and I was hit on by at least three men. One guy stuck his tongue in my ear after a meeting, and so I was, I was, you know, sort of rushing out. I was in New York City, and I was sort of rushing out to get out, get out of there because I found the culture of it super oppressive. And he stuck his tongue in my ear and said, "Are you hungry? Do you want to go for lunch?" And it was like, "Ew." No. You're like, that's the last thing I want to do right now. Oh, are you kidding? No, I still am grossed out by that. It's something that that is accepted. I explore it. Um, I have a friend who made a documentary about it, the whole sexual predation, which is completely accepted, understood, winked at. It's called the 13th step. It's really a problem, you know, that that men or, you know, women can prey on women, men can prey on women. Men can prey on men. It's very much a part of the culture. It's accepted. The U.S. headquarters, if you want to call it that, they don't. They don't call it that. But they're, they've done nothing about it. And you know, women get raped. They get young girls get raped. It's really a problem. And I'm surprised that in the Me Too movement, we have not seen more outbursts about that. Because it's. I mean, I. I. I after my book came out, I got. I felt like I was running a rape crisis hotline, to be honest with you. Um, I was overwhelmed by women who wanted to talk to me to tell me their experiences, who wrote about their experiences of being preyed upon in AA and thinking, oh, this is my only chance. I'm either going to die, end up in prison, or institutionalized somewhere if I keep drinking, because that's what they tell you. That's the threat. And if you don't come back to the meeting, this is what's going to happen to you. It's a very sort of threatening, I found it, threatening an oppressive environment. And furthermore, and we don't have to, you know, we don't have to dwell on this. We can also talk about what works. I want to be hopeful for your listeners. But one thing that really struck me as somebody who has spent a great deal of time covering mental health for the last decade, it felt to me when people do their sharing, it felt to me as if it was an endless loop of this almost broken record of trauma that you just hear over and over and over and over. People talking about their quote-unquote worst drunk, the time they ran into a telephone pole, the time they drove with their kids in the car and they flipped the car, the time they were so out of control, the time they, you know, I remember one woman talked about, you know, how she, the best thing in her life was the hot gin 
that she kept hidden in her glove compartment on a hot, humid northeast summer day. And she still longed for that hot gin, even though it was hot and disgusting. And I thought, okay, if you're still longing for that and you've been sober for 20-some-odd years, what's going on? What? Have you not moved beyond that? Is there, is there not, I'm surprised it helped anybody at all. Actually, what's really important to note is that the spontaneous remission rate from people who are over drinking during a period of their lives, whether it's years or months or during a stressful time, this spontaneous remission rate is so much higher than the AA's rate of abstinence and if you don't come back, you're going to die. This is, I always say to people, I'm not like, it's not necessarily like I'm like, AA is evil. There are good resources within it, but it, it, to me, and it seems right. like it's a good starting point to understand your journey into what's really making you tick sometimes. And I think in a more modern age, meetings aren't doing it enough for a lot of people. Maybe that's the female mind too. Maybe that's just how we operate. A lot of my friends who've had alcohol related issues pair AA meetings up with therapy or with something else right. in additional. So I just want to come out and say right now that I am in no way bashing AA. I tell people that it's a good starting point. I understand that that could be the only resource you have within your scope of wherever you live or where you're at, but it shouldn't be the only option people think of, especially when there's a religious component to it. That might not cater to everybody specifically as well. So that makes it hard sometimes, I think, for people to really delve into and really subscribe to AA is sometimes the religious side of it, the faith-based side of it. So by no means am I saying, like, AA is bad. And I know that that's not what you're saying either, but it's just that this is what's going on. This is the real, real reality of what happens in it, across the spectrum within AA. Not for everybody, obviously. There are people who swear by right. it, who've been sober for decades because, and they directly attribute it to AA. And that's fantastic for them. But it doesn't work for everybody. And I don't think people knew or know the underworkings of it because it is. It's that anonymous factor to it. You know, people just see it as a 12-step meeting and, oh, yeah, my friend goes to meetings and they're doing great. And they leave it at that. It's not until a person's in there or a person like yourself goes to those meetings and then is, like, talking to other people who are like, let me share with you my experiences and sort of the, the other side of AA that is not glamorized or is not shown because it is this right. underbelly of sorts. Exactly. And also people who do not, shall we say, who do not find it appealing or are unable to adapt to the program. I mean, the program tells you, if you don't do this, you're not being truthful with yourself. There, I mean, the big book says that. And there's a lot of shame, I think. Not I think, I know there's an immense amount of shame if you slip and begin drinking again and then you have to go back and admit that you failed and there's a there's like this pitying aspect of it that I think is really damaging for women. Women who you know, the whole thing that AA was founded by these two men who were really at the top of the social pyramid. They were white men, one was a stockbroker, the other was a physician. And they were unable to stop drinking. They had one of them had a religious awakening. 
when he was drying out, he was on a hallucinogen in a hospital and decided to embrace this evangelical Christian program that really was all about confession and, and accepting your wrongdoing. And, you know, I mean, we don't have to go through the whole 12 steps, but as you say, the steps themselves are very, very rich religious. And I think seven of them mention God or a higher power. So sometimes the people who are unable to cohere with that, they just feel terrible. And they don't talk about it because there's so much, there's shame. And exactly as you say, it's glamorized. Oh, this is the one way. I, I, we love redemption narratives in our country. Absolutely. And Everyone loves an underdog story. Exactly. I was blind and now I can see. Mm-hmm. Like the lyrics to Amazing Grace. But there are, it works for you great. You know, go with it. That's fantastic. And people have the sense that, oh, well, it is the only way. And it does have a huge success rate because, oh, my friend goes and it works great for her. Or my uncle goes and he, 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 it saved his life. Or my neighbor goes and it saved her life. So you think, okay, great. Well, it works for them. Super. But we don't hear necessarily about the other ways in which people get well. And there are dozens of them. Exactly as you say, you want to pair it with therapy. Great. You want to pair it with antidepressants. Same with medication. You know, antidepressants. Exactly. You want to, if you're drinking to control your anxiety, we all know it's the fastest anxiety antidote there is. You're, Nerves are shaking, you have a glass of wine, you feel better. But the problem is when we develop the habit in which that's a regular thing and you need more and more and more to achieve the same effect or you're drinking despite physical and social consequences, that's, you know, problematical. So, you know, we can talk about some of the ways in which people are are able to to get better because there are dozens of them. Let's definitely do that because... In your article specifically, I know, and in the book, it talks about these ways. Um, but the article is the one that I just—I literally just sent it to one of my friends who who's, uh, who works in the medical profession because we were just talking about the holidays, and the holidays are especially hard for people, especially going through addictions and and temptation and having all this. So I was like, you need to read this article because I think this has well, it has really good resources and it has a really good explanation and background in terms of. A, and then also the alternatives that have been found what in, in Finland, I think you said, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So we can go into that a little bit because you went over there. Right, I did. The other day, I actually had a patient who was on one of the medications that, not antibus, but because uh, that's, that's like old Naltrexone? school. Yes, 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 yes. And the nurse and I, I was telling them about it and it was directly because I had read the articles and the literature behind it about how because they were like, well, why is this patient on this medication? I was like, I think I know why. And I talked to the patient specifically about it. And they're like, yeah, not many people know it's for that use because they think it's for something mm-hmm. else. And mm-hmm. I was like, no, 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 I, I, I totally get where you're coming from. And, you know, I applaud you on using that. But I also was like, but how do you feel? Like, has it helped to reduce that, I guess, need in your life to pair things up or to go for that drink? And that patient was like, it's been a complete 180 and they're connecting more with people um, and they're not relying on, you know, the the need for alcohol to, to help them along every day. And they were like, I never thought I could mm-hmm. get to that level. I thought, and they were a person that went to 12 step meetings and they, they said to me, like, I thought that I had to go to these meetings constantly. Like I thought this was the only way to keep myself accountable, but to know that there's a medication that can help me has reduced my stress more so than anything else. And I think that's very oh, profound. That's How did your patient find out about it? They talked to their therapist. I mean, they used resources outside of 
12 step meetings, you know, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. they talked Mm -hmm. to their doctor who who was like, you know what, let's try this route. And the patient was like, I I thought that, you know, I had only one route to go to maintain. And now that they know that there's Mm -hmm. another route, they were like the whole, you know, it's, it's been a whole entire shift within themselves. And, you know, and I think that's the thing too with AA is that there's such a, like you said, there's such a shame. It's like, if you, if you drink once and you haven't drank in, in nine years, you're a loser. All of a sudden, all, all exactly. the nine years, the nine years you did not drinking right. is like negated. Mm-hmm. You learned it's nothing like over the, the nine gutter. years. It's in the gutter, right? Oh, I'm so happy to hear about this patient. I really, it's just, it's just wonderful. I'm so happy to hear about the doctor. And, and the way the medication works is this. An American psychologist named David Sinclair. And he was in Ohio working with rats. There were rats that had been bred to really like alcohol, and there were a rat who had been, who were normal rats. The rats who were hitting a lever and drinking, 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 they were getting drunk. They were just, he was, you know, getting drunk all the time. And he decided to use a medication that is an opioid antagonist that blocks endorphins. From reaching when you drink, a lot of things happen. You have a number of chemical reactions. Your brain produces more glutamate, which is an excitatory neurotransmitter. It produces more GABA, which is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. It slows you down. GABA makes some people fall asleep when they drink and makes them sleepy. Glutamate is also the chemical that makes makes people sort of loud and obnoxious. And it also produces a hormone, endorphins, the feel-good hormone, that washed over your brain when you feel really great after you've had a great run, after you've had sex, after you're eating something you really like. It's the pleasure and euphoria. Dopamine. Exactly. So Sinclair thought, okay, wonder if there's a way to block the endorphins from reaching the brain, from reaching the, the receptors. Your brain has opioid receptors that endorphins fill. They, it's like a lock and a key. I wonder if there's a way to block those endorphins from reaching those receptors. And he decided to use this opioid antagonist that was being used on Vietnam veterans when they were coming home from, it's a really old drug. It's called naltrexone. And, and like you said, it's we a, see it more for opioid big, stuff, like it, more exactly, for, for people trying exactly. to kick and, an opioid habit. Right. And it, because the VA started using it, it was, it was synthesized in the 1970s. And it's been around for 40 years, right. and they were using it on, on Vietnam veterans who were returning and struggling with opiate addiction. So he decided to use it on these rats who loved alcohol. And almost immediately when they were given phenaltrexone, they stopped drinking. And the reason why is because the rats didn't get the buzz. It completely blocked the pleasure that they were getting. There was no reward. It completely blocked the pleasure that they were getting from drinking the vodka. Yeah, the biological and, like uh, yeah. response and association. There was a there was a dam in the middle of it all of a sudden. Com- exactly, that's a brilliant way to describe it. It completely cut off all the rewards, the benefits of the alcohol. So they stopped drinking. And I wanted to try this medication the way he described it. And I talked to several patients in Finland where there's a very, very, very strong a binge drinking culture people don't drink during the week but during the, w- the weekends for example it's not uncommon for people to drink 10 12 vodka shots 
Which is, like, totally, and, I guess you don't think about that in other cultures. I don't know. I always think of, like, Finnish people as being stoic or something. I don't think of them being well, heavy are, drinkers. Very, oh, there's a very, very, very heavy drinking culture there. And the Finnish government in the 1970s and 80s was pouring money into trying to, you know, examine these to try to stop them. They have socialized medicine. And they, they really poured money, but they, they recruited Sinclair from Ohio, wherever he was, I forget where he was. And he started doing this research on these rats. And the Finnish government adopted this program, this protocol, which is giving the drug naltrexone to people an hour before they would typically take a drink. Now, there are genetic mutations have that don't respond very well to naltrexone. However, Finnish, which is in Finland, which is an incredibly homogenous country, Finns have this gene. I think it's called OMRP1. They have this mutation. So it typically is more present in people of Northern European descent. So he developed the same protocol for people that he did for rats. And they, they administer the medication for one hour before you would typically take a drink. Let's say you start drinking typically at 6.30. So you take the pill generic, nobody's making lots of money off it, take the drug an hour free drink, and you take a drink, take another sip, you take another sip, you take another sip, and you don't feel it. You don't get that euphoria. So there's no point in continuing to drink. I tried to talk my doctor into prescribing this medication. He said, I'm not going to prescribe you medication for a drug you don't need. That's a science experiment. No, I'm not doing that. So I want, I did what other people did. I got the drug on the internet from, from Thailand who saves it and sells it to people who really need it because there's such stigma in you again in the US in not kicking the habit yourself. There's something wrong with you if you're unable to go cold turkey, white knuckle it, and do it yourself. And doctors are trained Typically, they go, they did do what you did in nursing school. They are not trained in addiction medicine. I think there's something like I learned in the Atlantic piece, there's something like only 14 or 15 medical schools that even offer courses on it. Which, and just as a real quick so, aside, I feel like it's such a disservice when all of us are talking about, oh, there's an opioid epidemic and we need to do more, and we're exactly, not even doing more in our schooling. Exactly. Exactly. It's something I could probably follow up in, in a, for a story because it's really a problem. And I applaud the fact that you have educated yourself to, to learn about other methods that you can tell your patients about because it's really crucial. There is a host of, there's a whole toolkit out there that is used in other grown-up countries and yet we rely on, and even not grown-up countries, even countries that are developing or use this medication and other forms of treating addiction. So what happened in Finland and what happened to me, what happened in Finland is that the people who adhere to this protocol, which is called the Sinclair Method, it was a miracle for them. I talked to a guy who used to down, he's a doctor, 20 shots of vodka. I don't even know how you funk. I don't know, even know how you stay alive yes. without puking yeah. after the fourth or third. I don't even want to think about what his esophagus must have felt like, but Ugh. he said it was a complete miracle. He went from drinking 20 drinks or 25 or 30 drinks a weekend, and he only drank on Friday and Saturday night. Totally lost control, but he became essentially a caveman 
And he didn't stop. He had four drinks or five drinks on Friday and Saturday night, but he didn't become this Neanderthal violent person who woke up the next morning and said, oh my God, how did that happen? And I talked to an actress for whom it worked, who literally was, her name's Claudia Christian. She's this beautiful woman who is sort of a sci-fi goddess. She's on this, in Babylon 5. She found herself waking up in the morning and driving to the liquor store in order to get her hit of, I think it was red wine. Yeah, um, like an eye-opener. That's what we do. We do exactly, when we assess people, exactly. you know, like your cage assessment, your eye-opener, are you... Are you shaky? Do you need a drink for a thing in the morning? So she learned about the protocol. She'd been in rehab. She'd been in detox. And she saw a flyer for a shot. There's also, I believe, there's also a shot. I think that's what she saw. I think she saw the Zivitrol. She saw, I think she saw an ad for the shot. And she was able to find somebody to prescribe it for her, and it changed her life. And she's become an ad- activist trying to educate people about this method. And again, it's a generic drug. There's no pharmaceutical reps. Well, there's a shot. I think it's called, there's a shot. It's about $1,000 a month. And insurance is not paying for it, which is sort of bizarre because there's a, there's a generic pill you can take. Right. But maybe, you know, 50 cents, 75 cents a pill. Nobody, and nobody's making money from that generic pill. There are no pens. There's nobody the billboard for this drug that's not making anybody any money. So, you know, I got it for, from the internet myself. I took, I think I ordered like two weeks supply maybe. Mm-hmm. And I took it for 10 days and I'm telling you, I would have a glass of wine, I would have a few sips, no, re- no reaction, no benefit, nothing. It made me feel as if a glass of wine was about as appealing as a big slurpy full of diamond town. It just, it completely turned me off to to alcohol. I also lost weight. I think I lost like three pounds when I was on it because I got full really fast. And I didn't want to get really full. I mean, I would like, I would make a beautiful meal and say, oh, I want to, oh, I can't wait to eat that. And I, I felt so full. So they're, all, they're also using it for binge eating. Um, yeah, in Europe, not I here. read about that. Because I was doing some research yeah. on that medication because... Yeah, after after reading the article and stuff, I was like, huh, I should learn more about this. But yeah, I saw that about some of the trials that they're doing about yeah, with eating disorders. It's interesting. All yeah, these other label so, uses, so but I, you don't hear about it a lot. You definitely don't hear about it here in the States. Yeah. And they have clinics like in yeah, Finland no, you for don't. it. So that's one method. And then there are behavioral methods that people find to be extremely successful. I met a woman who's become a friend, actually who, I mean, just a, you know, casual, warm telephone acquaintance, who tried a method from a group called HAM, Harm Reduction, Abstinence, and Moderation Support, HAM. And she used this methodology from this guy named Kenneth Anderson. She stopped drinking for 30 days, and then she reintroduced drinking using... And really being extremely mindful, which I know is sort of a contradiction in terms, but she used this mindfulness methodology as she was drinking. Took a drink, had her first glass of wine, and wrote on little note cards her feelings, her 
her thoughts, her cognition, what she was, you know, thinking about. And then she had a glass, you know, finished her second glass, did the same thing. Third glass, did the same thing. Fourth glass, same thing. And when she woke up in the morning, she realized, oh, this is so easy to see where I go from feeling good to feeling bad. The third glass of wine tipped her into morose sort of worries, a thought pattern she didn't like, she wasn't happy, she didn't really remember some of the stuff that she'd written by the fourth glass, it was even worse. Her handwriting got sloppier, and she taped those note cards up on her refrigerator for one year to remind herself, okay, cost-benefit analysis, the third glass of wine does not do me any good. Uh, that's the tipping point. Stop. Stop. And I think she maybe even drew a red line. And it really, I I just, it's so simple and it's so analog. No drugs, no nothing. It's just using your own brain to look and see, okay, here's what happens. This is is not working for me. No, I was saying, like, I feel like some people will hear that and be like, well, that's so easy. Like, I stop at two drinks all the time. But, But when you're thinking about a person's mind and what they get out of drinking, it's a big milestone to actually rein it in yourself. Exactly. And for people who who don't have that shut-off valve, it's hard to understand. It's really difficult to understand for, for people who are, you know, for people who never overdrink. But a lot of people do. A lot of Americans, you know, there are probably 20 million Americans who overdrink. And it's, it's, it's also... We talk about the opioid epidemic all the time and the, and the, because it's dramatic, it's terrifying. You find somebody with a needle in their arm dead on their living room floor, that's dramatic. We don't necessarily talk or think about the 88,000 Americans who die every year as a result of overdrinking because it's slow. It can sort of bleed into other diseases that are the result of drinking, but the rate of alcohol-related cirrhosis has skyrocketed in this country, especially among men and women who are under 50. That's the younger, younger that, population. Exactly. And that is a, that's a terrible, terrible, painful slow death. And I've seen a lot of younger people presenting with chronic issues due to their drinking, and they're in their late 30s to mid-40s. And... Their families didn't want to believe it for so long because the other thing too, I think, is the side of the coin for men and women is that it's hard to say to somebody, I think you have a drinking problem when you're younger because you're supposed to be able to be like, this is the prime of your life. You're celebrating big events. Who is going to step in and be like, I don't know, man, I think you might need to slow down your drinking. Not a lot of people will want to say that unless they're coming from a place of like, I see myself in you. and. Right. And the other thing about that is that well, who's going to listen to their friend who has a problem with drinking about problems drinking? Like, you worry about yourself. Right. I'm fine. I can handle I'm this. I'm worried about, yeah. I've got, I've got me. Yeah. I'm going to do me. Right. And it's so hard. I mean, so, like I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm of, of that age in terms of, you know, that younger population heading into, you know, the 30s land where a lot of my friends, like, I, I will take a look at, just what's going on around me, because I know my own relationship towards drinking is different from anybody else my age. And and I do, I consciously look up 
things such as, you know, different modalities in terms of things outside of 12-step meetings. Even within the world of 12-step meetings, there are different meetings you can go to. I mean, there's Women for Sobriety with the advent of more online-based things and app-based things. I'm sure that there's something down the pipeline. I know that there's more therapy that's going on where people can like text their therapist or something where there's like more of those things with like headspace and talk space and whatever the buzzword is for those, but it's good. It's good because people don't have to feel like they have to bottle it up and go to a meeting and talk to complete strangers. I think there's an anonymity behind being online, but it also helps you to open up more. I think that's since the advent of the internet that's been around, but it's now maybe being used more towards people who have addiction issues or need therapy sort of in in a way that they don't have easy access to. So I'm hoping, at least for me as a healthcare provider, I'm hoping that more younger people take those proactive steps to look at their relationship with alcohol and really, really zone in and be like, am I a person that can stop after that? Stop when I say I need to stop and, and I'm okay. Or am I a person that's always every time taking it to a new limit and putting people or myself or both in precarious situations? And I think that that's hard when you're younger to be like, I need to draw a line because everybody around you is like, no, 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 you're good. Let me get you another glass. And it's just like Mm -hmm. a social thing to do. So I think that if you can establish that, I guess, mindfulness and introspective observations, then it only will help you later on because hopefully you don't get to a point where you're in a really bad situation where you're putting yourself, your family or friends in danger. Because at that point, I've seen the other side of that. I work ER. I I see the DUIs. I see the people that come in that have ruined their life by ruining somebody else's life due to their decisions. And that's not something that you ever want for anybody. But alcohol is one of those things where you're just like, you can stop, you can establish a limit. But if you don't know your limit or you're constantly being reinforced that your limit is somewhere else, you know, and and you always push it, then, you know, you you end up in these bad situations. You end up visiting me in the ER and it's it's usually not good when people come in So just to wrap up, I, I want people to know that there are so many different, as you said, women for sobriety, there are apps, there's a... There's a really great app developed by an incredibly cool, smart psychologist named Reed Hester. It's called Checkup and Choices. There are so many ways that people can get better without the shame of labeling. I'm an alcoholic. I have to, you know, that's not even a word. I'm so glad we haven't even used that word, actually, because I don't believe in it. I don't believe in that label. The DSM-5 uses something called alcohol use disorder, which really connotes a spectrum of unhealthy drinking or risky drinking. Which I think is more You can be on the mild spectrum. Exactly. And you can be on the mild spectrum. You can be on the moderate spectrum. You can be on your, you know, the severe side of the, of the spectrum. And those people, for people who are on the severe abstinence, probably is the best way. But there are people who can moderate. And learn to reuse alcohol in a way that is more mindful. Again, I know that sounds like a contradiction in terms, but, you know, wine is a really nice beverage. Spirits are really lovely beverages, too. And you can kind of, you know, sip them and think about how they they 
got there, how they get to the bottle, the the grain that went into the the, the cocktail that you're drinking, or the artichokes. This is what my husband likes Campari, the artichokes. How did you get you know, how do you get this red drink, this beautiful red drink from artichokes? It's pretty cool. You know, if you if you if you you can learn to think of wine for you and I've done it myself. I use sort of Canadian approach which is take at least two or three days off of drinking every week so your brain does not get into a pattern of wanting that beverage every night. You break the habit of psychological dependence, not necessarily physiological dependence, but psychological dependence. Oh, it's seven thirty, I'm home, I had a really hard day. It was not the first thing I want to do is open a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc. You can get away from that. You can you can break yourself from that habit if you use just some some quite simple techniques to rewire your brain from wanting that. And whether it's coming home and giving yourself 10 minutes to change your clothes, pour yourself a beautiful sparkling water with some grapefruit, you know, slice of grapefruit in it. You can change. You can change your 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 habits to be healthy. It, it's it totally is possible. Doable. Yeah. There are lots of ways to do it. Exactly. There are lots of ways to do it. And if you find yourself in a rut and you get scared and you think, "Oh my God, what is happening? I'm sending these crazy texts at night that I don't remember. What What am I doing? How do I stop this?" There are lots of ways out there without having to accept the mantle of "I'm an alcoholic and I'm this is my life. This is my life." But this program, which was developed, after all, in 1935, 1935 people, okay, the, the, we know a lot more Just about the brain than we did in 1935. In 1935, when babies were born, they were held upside down by their feet and their bottoms were flat. Yeah. And we don't do that anymore. We The label, I think, is really, really damaging. You know, again, if it works for you, that's great. But don't be ashamed or afraid to try moderation methods which have been found to be incredibly successful in study after study after study after study. Whether it's in Finland, whether it's using naltrexone to kick the habit, you don't have to take it your entire life. It helps you rewire your brain so that you, I don't want to say it's a miracle drug. I think it works. It doesn't work for everybody, but it's certainly one of the tools in the in the toolbox. And then there are, again, there are apps that you can try yourself. And once you do achieve this, achieve success of, of breaking the every night drinking habit, you feel really great and you realize the benefits. You realize, like people say, well, why would you, if, you, if you're really addicted to alcohol and it's really a pattern, why would you take this naltrexone every day? Well, because it, it works for you and the success you have, the, the clarity you have at night from not drinking all the time and not, you know, obliterating, obliterating your memory makes you feel great. You know, if people sort of assess where they want to be and who they are and what they're what they're doing with their lives and their minds at the end of the year, it's a really important topic. I think so too, and and I appreciate you taking time out of your day and our finally our plans came together after, yeah. after us going back and forth. So thank you for being here, Gabrielle. It's been an honor to talk about to talk about this with an author. You know, reading your book a couple of years ago, I, I never would have thought I'd be talking to you. So. It's kind Aww. of, like I said, I'm a little awestruck by it. My dad's really going to love it. He'll be like, what? So, um, Oh, wonderful. Uh, oh, it's really, it's an honor for, for you to ask me. So I really appreciate it. It's a, it's a privilege to be able to, to sort of get the message out that yeah. there are other ways to, to help people.
people. And I'm always so delighted. It's like your patient, you know, who's using the drug and finding such success on it. I'm so happy to hear that. It's, it's wonderful. It's, it's out there. Use. It's being used. So, yeah, so it's it great is. there. It's, it's great. 